Okay, I changed my mind. I do want to be here. You guys have been a terrific audience. Thank you so much for putting up with me. So let's do this one last session for today. Our story starts this time in England. Remember James II was very pro-Catholic and Parliament said we cannot have a pro-Catholic king. So they invited William of Orange, a Protestant from Europe, to come be their king. William of Orange was a distant relative of the, either James or the Tudors. He did have some royal blood, so he, he was acceptable that way, but not near as close a claim. There was a man named Samuel Wesley, married to Susanna Wesley, who he called Suki. One night during the reign of William, after James II had been deposed, and William was now the King of England, Samuel Wesley, who was an Anglican preacher, prayed, God bless our King. And Susanna was silent. He called her into his office later and said, Suki, why didn't you pray a blessing for the King? She said, he's not my King. My King is James II. I do not agree with what we have done. That was an illegal deposition of the king, deposing of the king. So he said, God bring his curses down upon me. This is what Simon God bring his curses down upon me. If I ever share your bed until you have repented of this terrible sin. He said, if we are to have two kings, we are to have two beds. And he left the house. And he, start, he left for two years. He came back home to see if his wife had repented. She hadn't. He stormed away again. He met someone on the road and said, go back, give her one more chance to repent. When Samuel came back during his brief stay, someone, Samuel Wesley, for his intolerance, had a lot of enemies. Someone set fire to his house. And he said, okay, I'm going to overlook this flaw of my wife and live with her. And because they got back together, John Wesley and Charles Wesley were later born. If they had remained separated, we would not have John Wesley and the Methodists that he grew up. We wouldn't have Charles Wesley and so many of the beautiful hymns, Charles Wesley wrote between five and 8,000 hymns. John Wesley was brilliant, very high IQ, intensely logical. He would argue everything very logically. Charles Wesley was much more emotional and up and down. They went to Oxford and <coughs> And while they were there, they started what they called the Holy Club. These men were so disciplined that they would write down everything they were going to do to the day to the hour and stick to it. They ministered to prisons. They observed every fast day. They were diligent in prayer and Bible study. If anybody was going to make it to heaven by works, they were. Because both John and Charles doubted their salvation 
and they were going to use all of their power to earn their way into heaven. George Whitfield was born into a family that owned an inn, like a motel. His father died when he was two. He had six older siblings, but he was the baby of the family, and his mom had great hopes for George. Wanted him to get the best in education. George, as a young man, loved the theater. He'd sometimes miss school because he'd get so caught up in practicing the different parts for plays. He loved the idea of acting. His mother remarried a man who had a terrible business sense, and he ruined the family business before his mom ended up divorcing him. At the, Charles, I mean, uh, George was on his way to higher education when he was called back and forced to work at the inn. He heard about this idea though, where you could go to Oxford as a servitor, which meant that you would serve, you would become the errand boy for the wealthy students, do whatever they wanted, and they would in turn pay your way through college. He went there and he heard about this holy club that was derisively called the Bible Moths, or the Bible Bigots, or the Methodists. Another example of an insult being turned into a, a name that they embraced. <laughs> Camera was out. So, George was not <laughs> George was not allowed to introduce himself to the Wesleys, even though he was very curious about this group. Charles Wesley noticed George and invited him to breakfast one morning. He said, sure, why don't you join our holy club? So George Whitfield joined this group with abandon. This, George Whitfield read a book about how you needed a new birth in order to be saved. And George Whitfield wondered whether he had that. So he redoubled his efforts to earn God's favor good works, more Bible study, fasting, basically ruining his body where he got so weak, he was bedridden for seven weeks. He was so weak in trying to earn God's favor. And when he was on the verge of collapse, he just gave up. He surrendered to God, and at this point, God filled him with his Holy Spirit, and Whitfield felt like he had just been received by God. He recognized that God accepted him, not because of his works, but because of what Jesus had done. And he said he was filled with such an unspeakable joy. He just couldn't extol the virtue of this joy. From this point on, Whitfield was determined to spend his life calling people not to harder, more effort or greater good works, but to call them to crying out to God in helplessness and begging for the new birth. John Wesley, at this time, I will try not to use that phrase. Anyway, he, was, he said, I am going to go to Georgia as a missionary to the missions there, as a missionary to the Indians. Okay, let me just pull this together. <laughs> On the way, there was wild storms. These little boats on some of these gigantic waves. These waves, you know, would go up 80 or 90 feet, and you're on a little boat. It's a very scary thing, where you're just these huge waves. 
And Wesley was terrified for his life. And he looked at these Moravians who were also going, oh, I don't have time, they were German pietists. Anyway, you can do your own research. But they were not afraid. They were not afraid to die. And he was astounded that even the women and children were not afraid to die. And he asked them why. He said, because we have assurance of our salvation. And what Wesley realized that he did not have that assurance. He was still striving for these good works. He went to Georgia and he had a miserable time there in trying to establish this colony. He fell in love with this woman. He was indecisive about whether he wanted to marry her. She ended up marrying someone else. He felt like she had lied to him, so he excommunicated her, which made this man angry at Wesley for excommunicating his wife. So this man <laughs> rallied the town against Wesley, and Wesley was chased off um, out of America. And on the ship back, he said, I came to America to convert the Indians, but who is going to convert me? And when he came back to America, he continued to seek God and try works. But he also encountered a truth through the Moravians about how God gives us the free gift of salvation. And he felt his life in a famous conversion experience suddenly changed, where he now felt reborn again. He made it sound like it was this dramatic change where he never had any doubts about his salvation. His life was dramatically changed. But he, his journals and private letters reveal that he continued to feel ups and downs. But the advice he had received from the Moravians was to not listen to his feelings, but to keep preaching until the faith came. In other words, don't let your feelings dictate what's true. Just keep preaching what is true, and the feelings or the faith will come later. So Wesley continued to preach. Charles Wesley had a similar experience. And those two began diligently preaching in the Church of England. Whitfield followed on Wesley's heels to Georgia. While he was in Georgia, he became inspired to build an orphanage for the orphans there because London's orphans were sent to Georgia and said they have no place there. Whitfield began a preaching tour of North America. Whitfield had an amazing gift. Every time he spoke, the audience was spellbound. His love of the theater came through in that when he spoke, he revealed God's truth in a dramatic way that people were spellbound. He was so emotional during his preaching. He would often be in tears. David Garrick, who was a famous English actor at the time, said he would pay 100 guineas just to be able to say, oh, like George Whitfield. <laughs> As George Whitfield came through the colonies, he met Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a printer, and he recognized how gifted this man was. And he thought, boy, I think this is a recognizable name, and if he ever writes anything, people are going to want to buy up anything that this man has written. George Whitfield was looking for someone who would help spread the gospel and print things that would help promote his, his ministry. So those two began a friendship that lasted for life. Boston was a town of about 17,000 people. And when 
Whitfield came, news of him spread so fast that his dramatic oration abilities that they couldn't find buildings big enough. And on his final sermon before he left, 23,000 people came to hear him. Benjamin Franklin, who loved doing calculations, he walked back until he could no longer hear Whitfield, where he walked back to the point where he could hear Whitfield comfortably, calculated the area of people that you could fit in there. He said, wow, this guy could preach to 30,000 people. That's the type of voice he had. During Whitfield's tour, he was earnestly urging people just to cry out to God. If you read his sermons, he hits people hard. He was not just peddling a soft gospel. He wasn't just telling jokes or being entertaining. He was hitting people hard. But people were so drawn to him. While he was preaching, he was also trying to raise money for his orphanage, which he had founded in Georgia, which he called Bethsaida. Benjamin Franklin tells of how he was listening to Whitfield ask for money for the orphanage. And Benjamin Franklin thought this was a bad idea. Georgia is not a place where you want to set up a type of business that's going to succeed. But as he listened to Whitfield, he started thinking, well, okay, maybe I can give just the copper coins in my pocket. Whitfield continued to preach, and Franklin said, okay, I'll give the silver coins too. Then he said, okay, I'll give the gold coins. And by the end of the service, he had borrowed money from a friend <laughs> to give everything he could to this orphanage. That was the kind of spell that Whitfield had. Whitfield came to Jonathan Edwards' church, and you're going to get much more background tomorrow about Edwards. Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife, said this was a man who aimed at the heart, how he just speaks the gospel truth in such a simple, vibrant way. Jonathan Edwards was seen weeping after Whitfield's sermons. He was just so amazed at how much God's Spirit was pouring out through Whitfield. Edwards had Whitfield speak to each one of his kids to make sure he was saved. they were saved. Whitfield continued this tour, and he became the first superstar, the first celebrity of the colonies. At one point in his life, they figured that 80% of people would have at least heard Whitfield once. And that... He was the most recognizable name in the colonies next to the king. This man told a story about how he was plowing in his fields and he heard that Whitfield was coming. He dropped the plow, unhooked the horse, went and got his wife and got there as fast as he could just to go hear Whitfield. He was bigger than the Beatles. <laughs> People were jostling each other and trampling each other to be able to get to the front of the line where they could hear Whitfield. Whitfield came back home, only discover that people had turned against him. And he couldn't figure out what went wrong. It turns out he was a Calvinist and had published his ideas. And the Wesleys were very much anti-Calvinists. A friend of Whitfield, John Senek, 
who also preached himself into a grave, was a Calvinist. And he was having supper with Charles Wesley. And they were debating election. And Charles Wesley got so emotional that he scared everybody at the table. And he pounded the table and said, John Calvin is the firstborn of Satan. This is Charles Wesley, who wrote, And Can It Be? But people were... <laughs> We're so shocked at this, that this seriously ruptured his relationship with Calvinist Whitfield. Both Wesleys were very much Arminius bent. Wesley, Charles Wesley would write very pro-Arminian pro hymns that were directly against Calvinist truths. And it took a long time for those two to reconcile. But Whitfield had other problems going on. He was 25 when he came to America, and before he had left, he had fallen in love with a woman named Elizabeth Delamont. He was trying to block out marriage, but when he got there, he received this passionate love letter from Elizabeth saying, I'm trying to make room for God in my heart, but it's hard when a rival has taken its place, referring to her love for Whitfield. Whitfield, when he met, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards was so impressed by the love between them and so impressed with how Sarah Edwards was enabling Jonathan and his ministry that he said, God, please give me a daughter of Sarah, like Sarah, Ed a daughter like Abraham's Sarah, <laughs> like Sarah Edwards. He was torn. Part of him, he said, wants to get married. I do believe that God has called me to marriage. But he said, I also feel like I need to live my life in a way where I can live completely dependent on God, where I don't need marriage. But he decided that he would propose to Elizabeth Delamont. But he wrote probably what is one of the most unromantic proposals ever written, where he said things like, he listed all the hardships she would have to face. She said, are you willing to act as if we're not even married when I'm gone? for years at a time on <laughs> She said, and let's, let's no longer use passionate terms of love like the pagans. Let's do this strictly for the love of God. <laughs> One skeptical biographer said, if he had designed this proposal to ensure its, its failure, he could not have done a better job. Well, this was turned down, not surprisingly. She had <laughs> realized that Whitfield was only human and she didn't want to. Whitfield mentioned his desire for love to a fellow revivalist named Howell Harris. Howell Harris said, you know what, I have the most providential solution. I've had this woman, she's a widow, her name's Elizabeth James, and she has a major crush on me, and I cannot get rid of her. <laughs> said, I have... She wants to marry, but I do not want to be entangled by marriage. But I cannot get her off of me. So why don't you marry her? <laughs> so he set them up. They started writing. And Whitfield was very impressed with Elizabeth's desires for God. But when Elizabeth heard what Howell Harris had done, she was furious. She said to Harris, even if you were my father, it would not have been right for you to just dump me off on some other guy. But Whitfield pursued her, and those two ended up marrying, even though they had spent less than a week together, total time, before they got married. Howell Harris ended up giving away Elizabeth James 
at the, I was going to say funeral. <laughs> at the wedding. And Elizabeth's letters show that it took her 10 years to get over Harris. In fact, Whitfield was not an easy man to be married to. He said, I shall not preach one less sermon in a married state as I did when I was single. And on their week-long honeymoon, he preached twice a day. <laughs> he would sometimes leave her for up to two years traveling. It might have been better had he not married. His poor wife had several miscarriages, had one live birth, and he, a son, ended up dying at four months. Even when Whitfield was grieving, he still preached three times before the death and the funeral. Whitfield, they figure, preached over 18,000 times to a total of, yes, over 10 million people. Just amazing, because that's live audience. That's not where you get on satellite and get on network television and reach people. This was personal contact with people. While Whitfield was back in Europe, a man by the name of Gilbert Tennant was continuing this revival. One journalist who was covering the event said that Tennant got up there and yelled at the audience, damn, damn, damned, you're all damned. He said, this so charmed the audience that they were willing to wallow in the freezing temperature and snow for another three hours to listen to this man's beastly brain. <laughs> that was their <laughs> impression of Gilbert Tennant. Whitfield went to Scotland and he preached such a passionate sermon one evening that he said, by the end of the evening, it looked like a battlefield because there was 20,000 people strewn all over the field. Some people were laying over, doubled over in agony for their sins, feeling such conviction. Other people had just received joy and they were just exalted and ec ecstatic that they had got rid of their burden. All night you could hear people either wailing, begging God for mercy, or people rejoicing in praise. He was shocked. He said, this outdid anything I ever saw in America. John Wesley continued to preach. Churches, they were starting to be rejected by the Church of England. Churches weren't accept, accepting them. So Whitfield said, go outdoors, preach outdoors. And both Charles and John Wesley were very reluctant to do that because they wanted to stay submitted to the Church of England. But they started doing it, and as they preached outdoors, more and more people came. Wesley went to these the corners where the miners were, where they were just apparently barbaric people, very uneducated, life was cheap in a mining town. But God's spirit moved so powerfully that they were just weeping and in tears. They started receiving physical manifestations that were shocking Wesley because people would either go into ecstasy or they would experience these violent convulsions where they were in terrible physical pain. And they would just disrupt the service, but there was such a powerful work of God that was going on. John Wesley's greatest strength was he knew that once you led a revival in an area, you can't just leave them alone and expect the seed to grow. Sanctification was very important to Wesley. Because he was Arminian, he didn't just believe that you were once saved, always saved. He believed that 
once you were saved, you needed the accountability of a body, and you needed to take this seriously. And so he would establish groups that would split if they got too big. And these were groups of accountability that would meet. And that was what was the greatest strength of the Methodist movement, was that they really focused on community everywhere they went. Wesley lived to be quite an old man, continued to preach into his... I'm sorry, my mind's sorry. I can't remember if he was 70 or 80, or so, but somewhere right up until the end, he would preach walking six miles sometimes to deliver a sermon. Wesley also had a pretty lousy love life. But these men, where they did not have a lousy love life, was their love for God. And even though they were sick and full of illnesses, they continued to persevere. Whitfield was writing to a sick friend and he said take heart we are completely invincible until our time with earth is done he said there's times I feel like my because of my continually vomiting that I'm on the verge of death he said but the pulpit is my savior and he, he would just continue to preach Whitfield would during his carriage rides, he would try to stay knowledgeable. He would read as much as he could. Whitfield made seven trips to America. He took the side of the Americans during the revolution. Wesley took the side of the British. He thought that the Americans were rebellious colonies. Whitfield's orphanage, even though he raised so much money, it was very difficult at first because it was the only people he could find were ex-convicts who were not skilled laborers. Because remember, that's what Georgia was founded for. And this was actually just a few years after Georgia had been founded. Two tragedies struck the orphanage. One, a huge load of supplies that was coming was stolen. And he couldn't replace it. And one of the orphanage's main benefactors from I don't remember if he was from American or England. He died without leaving any provision in his will for the orphanage. And this left Whitfield in debt. I don't remember the amount of currency, but the equivalent was 20 years wages. So we're looking at conservatively eight or nine hundred thousand dollars that Whitfield was in debt. He felt like he had followed God and he had this huge debt around his circles. He was in danger of being put in debtor's prison. And he was so desperate, he actually bought a, bought a um, plantation where slaves that he would hope would bring money to support this orphanage. Finally, someone from Scotland left a legacy or a will that said, Bethsaida shall have it all, and he gave his inheritance, and finally the orphanage was out of debt. Whitfield continued preaching every chance he got and I was so moved he was feeling so sick that he knew he was about to die and he prayed he said God let me pray let me preach and seal your truth one more time and then you can take me home and he stood up on this barrel and as he started to preach his thoughts were disjointed he looked pale he looked like he was dying he was hoarse, you could hardly hear him. And he said, look, let me just, give me a minute. 
And then he was filled with this new flame. And his voice got bolder, his thoughts got clearer. And he started preaching with all his old vigor again, saying, works, works. I'd rather try to climb to the moon on a rope made of sand than try to get to heaven by works. He continued to preach the gospel one more time. And he died. He died that morning.